the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr. You may notice this week my voice is a little bit throaty for these links. I've recently been back playing 11 aside football. And yes, I'm one of those shouty centre-backs who can't stop shouting and giving all of those footballing cliches, unfortunately. But hopefully I'll be able to get through it just to tell you that this week's guest is Gigi Fernandez. Gigi won 17 Grand Slam doubles titles, 14 of those with Natasha Zevreva and... She won the other three with Robin White, Martina Navrasilova and Jana Novotna. And on this program, Gigi explains how it was Jana's decision to end their team that led her to playing with Natasha. So it was that touch of fortune, that moment of fate which put her with Natasha Zavreva and that became one of the most successful doubles teams in the history of women's tennis. In 1991, they came together. Then they won six Grand Slam titles in a row, 14 in total. It's an incredible story, and you get to hear about all of that on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. Gigi talks about her partnership and her friendship with Natasha. She also talks about when she won the Olympic Games with Mary Jo Fernandez. And she tells us what she's up to now with her own online platform called Doubles TV, giving specialist information on how you can be an excellent doubles player. She talks about all of that on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. So as I've got a sore throat, let's not talk any longer. Let's get to the best in the world. It's Gigi Fernandez. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Gigi Fernandez, welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr, a 17-time Grand Slam champion in doubles, also a two-time Olympic champion. Welcome to the program. You've got such an amazing story and, and obviously so many great career highlights, but I actually wanted to start off with something pretty light because I was looking at your WTA tennis uh biography earlier today and it's it's got the usual things about where you were born and the things that you're doing the people you've met like meeting margaret thatcher and things like that the one which struck out to me though Gigi, was it said has a pig collection um oh god that's like 40 years old (laughs) what is that about (laughs) well you know when i was on tour people would just give me random things they would just give me random gifts and I thought, you know what, I'll just start a collection and then instead of them giving me random things, then I'll collect something. So then I started getting pigs from everybody and it was, at first it was kind of cute, but then it got out of control because then, you know, I had like over 200 pigs, different kinds of things and then some were little, which were fine, but then some were these ginormous stuffed animals that I would have to carry around, you know, the world on a plane and it was like, (laughs) so I got to be a little bit out of hand, but it's just a fun thing I did with, with, um, you know, my fans back then who wanted to give me something. Oh, fantastic. So where are they all now? Uh, they've all gone. Mm. Okay. I have one, but not many. I have like a doorstop that I, that I kept and I have like a chip dip that I still have that's a pig. And pretty much other than that, I got sick of the pigs and I 
give, give them all away. <laughs> yeah, so, so some people collect magnets, some people collect shot glasses, and yours were things related to do with pigs. I collect the pigs. You know, my dad had a coin collection and a stamp collection when we were growing up, so I think I have that gene ah. uh, for collecting. So the other thing I collected were like uh, quarters. I collected, there's a, um, the, back in the 2008, I think it, it was when it started, or 98, I forget which year, but um, the U.S. started putting out quarters for every state, oh. and they were two, two, from two different mints. So it was a Philadelphia mint and a Denver mint, and so there was 50 of them, and so I collected those, and that was kind of fun. And you still got them? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I do. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, we, we recently had a, a new £5 note. And everyone started collecting those because uh, if you got one beginning with A and then a certain set of numbers, they ended up being worth a lot more money than five pounds. So people started oh, getting really interested in that. So obviously collecting all of these pigs involved a lot of travel. Did you enjoy traveling as a player? Yeah, I did. I mean, I was, um, I've always enjoyed traveling and it was, I think, a great life to be able to travel the world but work. Because sometimes you go, you know, when you go on holidays and you go to a place and after three days you've kind of seen everything and you don't have nothing else to do and you never see it again. But with, with our travel, we were there, you know, every year for 14 years for like a week. So, um, so I saw each place, you know, 10 or 12 times and you really got to know the place and know the people and um, really understand the culture. And I got to sightsee a lot because I would, I would, some players never sightsee because it was, you know, can be a little bit tiring at times, but I made an effort to go, to do one, at least one thing every time I went somewhere. So eventually after, you know, 10 years, then you get to see a lot of things. So I, so in London, I saw the Tower of London, the Crown Jewels, Windsor Castle. I did, um, you know, saw Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, like all the main attractions mm. um, where, you know, there's a lot of players that don't take advantage of that and just are focused on tennis. I was kind of have this view that this is a great opportunity to see the world and, and learn about it so so yeah definitely took advantage of that yeah and if it was now you'd have an amazing instagram page with uh pictures from all of those <laughs> places <laughs> yeah i have an instagram page but it's just i just you know like players of my generation we just started trying to understand i mean i i get social media but we don't have the followings obviously because we've already been retired but i do have an instagram page gg fernandez tennis 17 um and I kind of Instagram once in a while. I'm more active on Twitter. So I do have a Twitter, Gigi Fernandez, and uh, Facebook and all that. But it's a different world nowadays for the tennis players, definitely. It, it, it really is. I was actually on Instagram earlier today, and I, I randomly came across someone who I'd never heard of, double took a look at their page, and it said they had 24.4 million followers. It, oh, my it, God. Who was it? Uh, Huda Kassam or something like that. Some it was a random beauty blogger which I came across. Not that I'm into that kind of thing, but I was just like twenty four point four million. That is unreal. Oh um, 
but but of course what you, a lot of what you're doing now and and i'd like to just catch up in in what's going on in your world is that i've seen you you've got uh, your own business related to things online and and doubles tv in particular um, right. do you want to tell us a little bit about that Gigi? Yeah, so about six years ago, I started coaching recreational players because I became director of tennis at a club in Connecticut where I was living at the time. And I was just shocked to see how bad doubles instruction was, uh, not only at the club level, but also when I started traveling to conventions, you know, US, I don't want to name them, but all tennis industry conventions, you know, if you go to any of them, 98% of what's being taught is... Um, targeting the singles player, you know, high performance players, singles players, the mental part of the singles game. And, you know, 5%, there might be one doubles, you know, one hour chat in a three day conference. And I just found that remarkable because I, because if you look at the club player, if you look at the adult tennis player population, 80% or above play doubles. You know, at a certain age, you can't, your body can't play singles anymore. So everybody ends up playing doubles. The problem is that we don't teach our juniors how to play doubles, and no country does. So we're all taught how to play singles, and then doubles is the afterthought. It has always been. It's the afterthought at the majors. It's the afterthought at all the tournaments. But then, you know, if you're an adult tennis player, that's what you play. So I found um, I found that kind of upsetting that there was not better instruction out there. So I just decided to put something together, and um, and I did. I spend you know a lot of time thinking about it and coaching players of, of the sort of beginner intermediate intermediate advanced and some advanced but not we're not talking high performance players here we're talking adults right mm. so um so i created this way of teaching doubles that it really has resonated with people and it's called the gg method um and it's available all my doubles knowledge is available at um www.doubles.tv and i just created that website to store all my knowledge. Um, so not only do I have the GG method in there, which is about a three hour course consisting of um, videos, you know, and the way I broke up the game of doubles was by really thinking about what's important in doubles and what do people really have to understand. And, you know, and the five steps are positioning. You, know, you gotta be standing in the right place, court coverage. You gotta know what to cover. You need serve strategies to hold serve. You need return strategies to break. And then once you've hit it, a serve and a return, then shot selection comes into play. And I find that um, players make all kinds of errors. They make four kinds of errors when they play doubles. They make positioning errors. They make execution errors. They make shot selection errors. And they make tactical errors. And the, the three of those you can control. You know, the only one you cannot control is execution. So if you can really teach players how to position themselves, what's high percentage shot selection and what tactics to play against an opponent, they immediately improve without getting better, without getting, you know, what, making your forehand or your backhand better, you can improve with doubles by just simply understanding it. Mm. So that's what's available online um, at doubles.tv. And then once you've taken that, then you can enter the classroom. And the classroom is a, a little more intense program, which is a weekly um, program where every week we delve on one of the subjects of the GG method and you get practice drills, you get, mental tips, you get quizzes to make, you know, track your progress. You get, um, expert advice from people in the industry that submit, um, information for, for, for these players to, to really try to help them understand doubles better. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. And, um, and it's, it's going pretty well. I mean, I, I'm not teaching full time anymore. I was teaching full time for, or full time meaning not, I shouldn't say full time. I was teaching about 15 hours a week. Um, because my full time job is being a mom. <laughs> so, I was teaching when my kids were in school, 
uh, and now I just um, teach online. So I'm really, really excited about growing this part of the business. Mm, fantastic. Are your kids any good at tennis? Have we got future champions there? My daughter's fairly coordinated. My son likes it, but it's not as coordinated. Um, but neither of them are going to be professional tennis players. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> have all their interests. Right now they like soccer uh, or football, as you call it. And um, they like, uh, my son likes football, football, American football. So, yeah, they like more team sports at this age. Mm. And, you know, everything you were talking about there is is, is tennis is a team sport um, with, with the double. So it was really interesting to hear from you there about the, the differences between playing singles and, and playing doubles. Where When did you kind of come to the realisation that you would be more suited to doubles than singles? Well, I mean, I think I knew since I was a young girl that I was going to be, that I was more suited for doubles because when I was 12, I won the Puerto Rico National Championship in the adult division, you know, and I was big nationals, finals of nationals and win nationals in the doubles. But but I always focused my career on singles um, until the very end. I mean, I was always... Uh, striving to get to the top 10. I mean, my highest ranking was 17. Um, I got, you know, I was top 30 most of my career, which is not shabby. Um, but then, you know, with, with what happens is when you're a really good doubles player, like my partner and I were, we were constantly playing on the weekends. It's like Saturday, Sunday finals. Then we'd have to travel Monday and play singles match on Tuesday. So a lot of times I just was not prepared for my singles matches. So over time it became... You know, really what I'm making most of my money is in single, in doubles rather. So I just started to focus more on that. But it was really until the last, my last year that I stopped playing singles and focused strictly on doubles up to, up to my last year, I was still playing singles. Mm. And you, you mentioned growing up in, in Puerto Rico and winning the adult championship at the age of 12. Incredible. What was it like growing up there and, and learning the sport of tennis? Um, I mean, it was pretty easy back then because... I, you know, I had two brothers and a sister who all played tennis. My parents, you know, would take us to the club and then we would just go hang out, you know, and just hit balls. I would, when I was little, I would just hit against the wall because I wasn't old enough to um, take lessons. And the racket was like probably bigger than me because back then we didn't have little rackets. Um, And it was for me easy because I didn't really have competition. Like I was number one in my category, like say 12 and unders when I was number one in 12 and unders I was also number one in the 14s and 16s um and then probably not far away from the 18s as well from you know being one or two so um so you know I was lucky that because the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association I was uh, able to play the USDA Nationals and then um a coach that's where you know I was recruited by a coach uh university coach here in, in America that saw me play and saw talent. And the first time I went to college, I got a uh, scholarship. And the first time in my life that I played every day was when I went to college and I was 18. Then you, you moved to university and then then your professional career kind of kicked on after that. And uh, we were talking earlier about your doubles and, and how you kind of moved into it. But before you started playing with Natasha Zvereva, who you won 14 of your 17 Grand Slam titles with, you played with Robin White, Martina Navratilova, Jana Novotna, you won... Uh, doubles tournaments with all three of them what was it like playing with them could you have gone further with any of them in particular you know I don't know like not with Robin because she was not consistent enough 
Uh, Martina was, of course, we probably could have gone further, but we were both at side court players. So we kind of struggled because one of us had to play the deuce. Okay. Um, and Yana, we, with Yana, yes, but she stopped playing with me. So um, we'll never know. But no, I think that Natasha and I had something really special. I mean, I, I think, I don't think, I didn't feel that with any of the other girls. Like, just felt so comfortable on the court with her and um, so supported. And it didn't really matter if we were having a good day or a bad day. Like, we were really well gelled and there's no, no one ever blamed the other for a win or a loss or took credit for the win or blame for the loss. So yeah, probably not. I would say not, not like Natasha and I did. Mm. So how did you first meet Natasha and, and how did the uh, relationship begin? Well, the backstory is that in the 1991 US, uh, I'm sorry, Wimbledon final, I was playing with Yana Novodna at the time. And then Natasha and Larissa Nealon were playing each other and we lost in the final six, four and a third Yana double faulted a match point. Um, I was not so happy about that. And then, <laughs> what did you say after that then? Well, after that, she pulled me aside and she said she didn't want to play with me anymore. Mm. And I was like, wait a second, you double faulted. <laughs> I should be backing <laughs> you. Well, unbeknownst to Natasha and I, Larissa and Yana had agreed to play together the rest of the year. So then they got together. And then Natasha and I were kind of, we didn't get together right away, but the following spring in uh, March, um, our coaches wanted to have a meeting with us. So actually our coaches were the ones that thought we should give it a try. And uh, we, we, we did. We started uh, playing together in April and it was magic right away. I mean, we won six Grand Slams in a row from the time we started. So, Did you feel invincible? Yeah, we were. <laughs> I mean, uh, we won we won 14 Grand Slams in five years. That's how many Grand Slams Venus and Serena have won in their career, in a 20-year career. So it was it was pretty rather fast, rather um, rather intense. How do you keep that motivation up? How do you keep the level of consistency? Certainly after the the first lot of six victories how can you then go oh, I want to win more or does it just come naturally well I mean we were in such a role you know we would um if we were not winning three grand slam two to three grand slams a year that was a bad year uh and we were so um dominating I mean we would win 10 tournaments a year and um you know and come back from you know, these matches, we would win these matches that we probably should have lost coming back from match points. And so we had this mental edge over everybody that really people would think we were going to come back before we even started coming back. I mean, I remember playing the championships um, at Madison Square Garden, just a year-end tournament, and it being down 6-2-5-1 to uh, Meredith McGrath and Patty Fendick. And it was, I think it was 11.50 p.m., and we still thought we had a chance to win, and we did. We saved like eight and nine match points, or I don't know how many. They served for the match three times. They had they were up six one in the tiebreaker, but it was like we just never. We we always thought we would find a way, and the majority of the time we did. So it was a good run. So what do you think are some of the attributes that you had, and then also separately Natasha had that made you such a successful team? You mean it physically or yeah, mentally? Physically and mentally. Well, from, the, from the pure game perspective, we had complementing. Uh, we had 
strength and weaknesses that complemented each other. So um, I'm a firm believer in doubles opposites attract. So she was, I was the emotional sort of extrovert and she was the introvert sort of, you know, ice maiden, if, if you will. Um, she had better returns. I had better volleys. I had a better serve. Uh, she had better uh, ground strokes. So it's like my strengths were her weaknesses and my weaknesses were, were her strengths. So when we put them together, um, it just worked. And then we just had fun. I mean, we had, we had, we, we somehow find a way to, you know, smile and laugh through the most intense pressure. And um, we just always found that when we were relaxed, we played our best. And we even had a joke book in our, in our book, in our um, racket bags. And if things were ever really bad or really intense, or we were just having a bad day, we would just pull the joke book and start telling each other jokes. <laughs> ah, do you remember any of them? Huh? Do you no. remember any of them? No. It's just like a random joke book. <laughs> so that was really helpful. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. There's more from Gigi coming up in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to tell you about two platforms we're using to continue this conversation about high performance in sports. Firstly, we're on Facebook. We've got our own specialist Facebook group. It's called Best in the World. It's the place you want to go if you want to discuss what's happened in this podcast a little bit further, whether you've read something recently, an article or a book related to sports and high performance, or you just want to discuss some of the amazing things that some of these top-level athletes and sports stars are doing that you're watching and you want to try and dissect it a little bit further. We're doing all of that in the Best in the World Facebook group. Come and join us. I'll put a link to it on the show notes page. Plus, we're also talking a little bit further on our Patreon page. Patreon is the page where you can support us financially from as little as $5 a month, and you get added benefits for supporting us. Go to patreon.com forward slash best in the world. Then you become part of the community, and I would really appreciate it if you can continue to support this podcast so we can continue to learn from the best sports stars on the planet, the world and Olympic champions, the world record holders, and the world number ones. That address is patreon.com forward slash best in the world. All right, let's return to speaking to Gigi Fernandez. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Also during that period, in 92 and 96, you won Olympic gold, albeit it was with a, a different partner. It was with Mary Jo Fernandez. Was that strange not playing with Natasha those times? Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit, but it was U.S. You know, I'm playing for my country, and uh, Natasha was Russian at the time. So I think what's most kind of interesting to point is that if if Natasha and I had come along five years earlier, we would not have been able to play together because – up until the wall came down in 89 and even into the 90s, 90, 91, like the Russians were only allowed to play with the Russians. So, mm. so we, we were not have even been allowed to play with each other until, um, you know, the wall came down and our sort of communism, you know, got loosened up a little bit, but they used to be followed by the KGB. There was KGB with them at all times and they were not allowed to socialize with uh, Russians socializing with Americans was not happening so the fact that our partnership even took place 
with a Russian and, and, an, and an American what could only happen because it was well into the 90s. Oh, amazing. Do you have a favorite victory? Do you have a favorite um, tournament yeah, win? I do. The, the, so the so the ninety one final. I told you that. Um, I just mentioned the story about Nata, about uh, Yana telling me she didn't want to play with me anymore. Mm. So in the ninety two final, guess who? Guess what happened? So now Natasha and I are playing Yana and Larissa in the finals, <laughs> and um, we were playing on court, old court number one because of the weather. We we're out on that court, and um, it, we were down four one, two breaks, and it started to rain. And I came in the locker room, and my coach came to me and he said, and he said, Gigi, you need to detach from the outcome. And I said, how is that even possible? Like I said, Wimbledon final, I cannot detach. It's just like, I wanted to win that match more than anything. Not just because it was Wimbledon, because, but because we were playing with the two players who had dumped us the previous final. <laughs> so, and I never won Wimbledon. And I, that was, you know, once I started playing, that was always my dream. Um, so somehow he said, you know, he said, you just have to have no emotion, whether you win or lose, it's the same. And try to do that because right now you're not playing really well. So if you don't do something, you're going to lose. So somehow I was able to follow his advice and detach from the thrill of winning or the agony of losing. And we ended up winning 11 of the 12 game, next games and won 6-4, 6-1. So that was pretty sweet. Mm, concentrating on the process rather than the outcome. Correct. Um, did Yana do a double fault on a match point there at all? Oh, God, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been then you really would have been able to uh, to rub it in. Right. Um, one of the things I read about you um, leading up to this interview was uh, you talked about being a risk taker and yeah. needing to attempt high risks. and. There was a really good um, debate on TV over here about a month ago with with some of the top uh, British footballers, one in particular called Frank Lampard. And he was talking about when he was young, he was about 19, 20, playing for his team West Ham. And he would try a few more difficult passes than he should necessarily try. He was trying something a bit more risky. And most of the time it would fail. And the crowd would get on his back and they'd have a go at him. And they were talking about some of the young players who, if they tried that, they would go into their shell and they wouldn't kind of grow as a player. Instead, he had to be mentally strong to kind of get through it, to get better. And then eventually those high-risk passes would kind of start to work. And that made him the great player that he became. Were there something similar which happened to you in your tennis career? Were there risks that you tried failed but eventually got right and and took you to another level well that's a good question um you know i think like my style of game was aggressive on uh, or risk-taking on a daily level on a daily you know i i was not the player that stood in baseline waiting for my opponent to make a mistake i mean i served and volleyed i returned and came in i was constantly pushing the envelope and when you're doing that you're taking risks because you're not just but you know, you're just back there hitting balls in the court. You're li- really trying to force the issue and trying to hit winners. Um, so, so I don't think there was a moment in my career where I thought, or there was a time where I um, thought I shouldn't be doing this because that was just my style of game. The thing with that style of game is that it does take a lot longer to develop than it does for a baseliner. But all court game players develop slow, slower than baseliners because we have so many options. You know, every time the ball came, I had 
five or six options of what I could do with it. And it takes a long time to figure out what is the right thing to do in each situation. Whereas, you know, the baseliners are hitting crossword and they're hitting down the line. And that's what they're thinking about, right? They're not thinking, should I slide? Should I chip? Should I come in? Should I stay back? Should I drop shot? Should I hit it high and come in? Should I hit it flat? Should I, you know what I mean? So, so I had, there was just so many options. Um, so it's more like, it's more a matter of learning to, uh, maximize the risk taking, I guess, mm. um, or minimize the risk taking to maximize the F, the end result. Okay. So take, it was almost like taking as little risk as possible within the risk range. Right. So yeah. you wouldn't be really crazy and do something crazy. And that's, that was what was hard to learn was how not to want to be, hit the flashy shot or hit the crowd pleaser every time when, when I could, but if I didn't pull it off, then it would cost me the match. So it was kind of learning when to reel it in and when to um, show off, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that, that, that game management, I guess. Um, we, we spoke about what you're up to now, being a mom and, and working with Doubles TV and, and your coaching. It's been about 20 years now since you retired from, from yeah. competition back in 97. What were those first few years like after you retired? Uh, the first few years were really hard because I probably could have kept playing. Um, I retired because Natasha did not want to continue playing. Um, and she, and we had actually stopped playing at the end of 96. We had stopped playing and then we both had dreadful years. So when 97 started, um, I actually begged, I was like, Natasha, just come on, let's just, so I started the year playing with Arancha and Arancha and I were both, again, ad side players. So we were, we did not do well. Arancha Sanchez Vicario, great doubles player, but not, not good for, we were not good for each other. So I, so I found myself without a partner in April co coming up to the, um, the winter, the uh, summer season. So I, I said to Natasha, look, just let's just fit. And she didn't have a partner either. She was like floundering as well. It's like, let's just get back together. We're, we're um, still good. You know, let's just give it a try. Let's play the rest of the year. And then we'll all retire at the end of the year. So we played that year and we won the French. We won Wimbledon and we made the finals of the U.S. Open and lost to um, Davenport and Novotna. So, so I thought, let's just keep playing because we're four Grand Slams away from tying Martina and Pam for most Grand Slams by a team in history. And she didn't want to. She wanted to go play with Lindsay Davenport, who is a great player, was a great player, still is a great player, but they did not mesh well together because there was no finisher. They were both setters. And Natasha was trying to be the finisher, but I was the finisher in our team and she was more the setter. So the two of them went off and... They made a lot of Grand Slam finals, but they never won one together. So that was kind of a shame. Um, yeah, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to play again. I didn't want to start the year playing with a, yet a new person. So I thought it was time. I, I I've been playing for seventeen or fifteen years. I won seventeen Grand Slams. I was pretty much feeling like, what would it matter if I won another one? Really, like it would. It would only mean something if I won three more with Natasha, and then we. We became the best team in the history of tennis. But if it was just to win another Grand Slam with another person, um, I think I was ready. So, but then once I quit, it was like, oh, um, I didn't have anything really solid to do, and I kind of floundered a little bit and took a while to, you know, I wanted nothing to do with tennis. Um, and then it took a while to kind of come back to tennis, almost, almost uh, 
15 years before I actually came back or 13 years. Wow. Why, why didn't you want anything to do with tennis? I think, you know, when tennis players, we get burned out. You know, it's a it's something you do your whole life and it's very sacrificed and it's very intense and hard. Like I wanted nothing to do. I didn't want to go, go near a gym. I didn't want to go near a tennis court. It was work and pain and um, a lot of sort of uh, negative feelings associated with the whole, I mean, because what you see, it's all the cool things. You see us on TV winning Grand Slams and blah, 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 but you don't see the other, you know, the other 40 weeks out of the year where you're like just struggling and working your, you know, what off and, you know, and people who go to the gym think they work hard and I, it, there's, it, they don't. I mean, I don't care how hard you work at the gym, it will never compare to what a professional athlete goes through and thus with their body, you know, it's like seven days a week, constant grinding, you know, just pushing yourself four hours a day. It's hard. It's really hard. And, and, and it's, you know, unless you've been there, it's kind of hard to, to understand it. So when it's over, you're like, okay, I'm done with that. And I want to do something else. That's not that. Was there ever one training session or time in the gym, which you used to absolutely dread? Yeah, well, I lived in Aspen, which was at 8,000 feet. So mm. oxygen was like a th we had a third of the oxygen up, up there. And whenever I would do plyometrics, like, you know, jumping on boxes or any kind of footwork drills, I mean, you're like, you're just sucking wind, like, <sighs> for like an hour, you know, and you can not get your heart rate down and you're just like miserable. So, yeah, any, any one of those was dreadful. And was there anywhere you found particularly difficult to play at anywhere in the, in the world where you're like, oh, I don't like playing here or this is particularly difficult. Um, well, I mean, I hate to throw the U S open under the bus, but that is <laughs> the hardest grand slams to play because of the, um, difficulty of getting there from the city. I mean, you would sit in traffic like for hours. Um, it just seemed like a really difficult of all the grand slams to me, that was the hardest one to play. Um, but, but having said that, it was one of the funnest ones to win. So <laughs> yeah, the, the hardest things are often the best. Um, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up here, Gigi. I know we've just running over time. Um, the one thing I just wanted to get onto is actually what we were speaking about just before we started this interview. Um, you said you were on a bit of a health kick and that your yes. breakfast consisted of a, a, a protein shake. Um, uh, firstly, I'd like you just to tell us what's in that protein shake. And, and secondly, um, obviously, what we know about nutrition now is very different to say what we, we knew about 25, 30 years ago. But uh, was there anything you particularly do throughout your competitive career um, as far as the nutrition side of things? Were there anything in particular you'd eat or stay away from? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, about my shake had um, almond milk, banana, a protein powder, like a vegan chocolate flavored protein powder, um, spinach, chia seeds and flax oil so or fish oil. Sorry, fish oil or flax oil, I forget which one I put in there. So um, I'm currently doing a 60-day challenge with my gym, which is Lifetime, which is a big, big uh, gym here in the United States. It's actually over 124 gyms in the country, and, and I joined my local one. So we're doing this 60-day challenge. So that's I'm kind of in this nutrition kick right now. But as far as when we were playing, back back in the day, uh, it was all about carbo-loading. Oh. We just... We just ate carbs and carbs and carbs. 
um, protein was sort of not, not mentioned or not, uh, not part of the equation, really. It was more uh, carbo-loading. Um, so I would, so, you know, I would eat a piece of bread before going on playing a match if I was hungry um, or, you know, pasta the night before pancakes for breakfast kind of thing. So very different than, than now. Uh, but it worked, you know, it worked back then. So mm, it worked for you. And that's how you became the best in the world. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. That, yeah. I don't know that that's why, but <laughs> <laughs> the pancakes, how to become the best in the world. Uh, yeah. well, Gigi, it's been really good to speak to you. Normally at this stage, I ask uh, my guests to plug their social media, but you've already done that with your Instagram. So yeah. I think what would be quite good is if you just tell us a little bit about what you've been doing recently, fundraising for Puerto Rico and everything to do with that, please. Sure. Well, and the thing, I, I, regarding social media, what, what I'd like to plug, if I may, is Go just TV, which is where my doubles knowledge lies. And then from there, you can do a variety of things. Um, so yeah, I'll plug that. And then as far as what I'm doing with Puerto Rico, I'm on a mission to help uh, power Puerto Rico. Uh, I'm involved with the um, something called the Victory Challenge, V-I-K-T-R-E Challenge. And we're just trying to raise funds to provide solar power to Puerto Rico and um, still 30% of the island is without power since Hurricane Maria, which is now almost five months ago. And, and no power also means no water, no running water because the, in these towns, the water uh, plants are run with electricity. So, so imagine living for five months with no electricity and no power and no water. Um, it's been really difficult for, for people there. And, you know, we've had energy problems, as far as I can recall, when I was a little girl, the electricity in Puerto Rico would just go out for no reason in the middle of the day or at any random time, the power would go out. So things kind of take for granted. I just thought that was normal growing up. But then I came to the States and started living here and like electricity never went out. And then I realized, well, that's not normal. <laughs> so so we're trying to find a sustainable solution. And solar power is, I think, obviously a great option. So there's... We live in the tropics, so we're trying to figure out um, how to power Puerto Rico in a sustainable way, and that's what I'm involved with right now. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure I put a link to doubles.tv and also to the Victory campaign as well on, on the show notes page of this podcast. Gigi Fernandez, thank you for speaking to me on this podcast, and thank you for being the best in the world. All right. Thank you. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. It was so great to have Gigi Fernandez as our first ever tennis player on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Hopefully we can get a few more in the future. I'd also like to get a golf player on sometime soon. We've never had that before. Unfortunately, because we've never had any tennis players before... I can't recommend any previous episodes with tennis players on this podcast. But what I'd like to do is just tell you about the five most popular episodes we've had on this podcast in the last year. Because clearly there's a reason people like them. So if you haven't heard them, these are the ones which probably you should go and listen to. So I've just got the list up here and I'll quickly go through them for you. Go and listen to episode 56 with Rebecca Sony, the swimming Olympic champion. 
We've got another swimming Olympic champion. You may remember Stephanie Rice from the 2008 Games. She's episode 53. Episode 52 is with Matteo Tagliariol, who is a fencing Olympic champion. Caroline Lind won Olympic gold in rowing. She's been on the podcast. And one of my favourites is with the speed skating Olympic champion, Chad Hedrick. That's episode 57. They have had the best downloads on The Best in the World with Richard Barr in the last 12 months. So go and listen to them if you haven't done so already. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes, Stitcher, also at sportachino.com. And of course, if you're not subscribed already, please do so on iTunes or Stitcher and give us a rating and review. It really helps boost our podcast. It'll take about 30 seconds, so if you can do it, I would really appreciate your time. All right, that's it for this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. I'll be back next week, hopefully with a better throat. And once again, we'll be able to learn from the greatest sports stars on the planet world champions, Olympic champions, world record holders and world number ones, all who are the best in the world. Speak to you next week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.